Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 90 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name is Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants some ideas and maybe a little nudge of inspiration to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. And today I'm joined again by my good friend, Ben Swart. Thank you for joining me on the podcast, Ben. Uh, our listeners may remember you've helped me with several episodes before, and they may have met you through the training days that we do at Brightspot or through coaching that you do for our mastery programs. I'm keen to talk about one of our favorite topics, which sounds kind of easy and kind of obvious, but we found isn't always so. And it's to do with communication about our cause. And in particular, it's to do with the order in which we bring things to life for our audience. And in particular, in my book and on my programs, I go to great lengths to point out the power of evoking the problem that our charity solves before you go into much detail about what your charity does. So said differently, I have found we tend to raise more money if we talk relatively less about what our charity does and relatively more about the problem that it solves for our beneficiaries and the fact that it works and is effective, like I say, rather than here's what we do. And Ben, you were mentioning you were doing a training day just recently and there was something that one of the brilliant fundraisers in that room said about the difference that their charity makes that really brought this to life. Do you want to just remind me of that story? Because I think it sums it up really nicely. Absolutely, Rob. So the story that they shared was that the founder of the charity, one of the reasons she started it was because she just got to the end of her tether. Her husband had cancer. He'd had cancer for a number of years. And one of the ways that they were trying to beat the cancer or to give him a longer life was to give him chemotherapy. And the challenge, they said, with his chemotherapy was that he used to have to go to the hospital, but the hospital never had any parking available. So she would, they were they were really lucky. They were quite a well-off family and she would drive him there in her sports car, but they would never have anywhere that they could park. And she said the moment when she realized she needed to come up with this charity was one of, on one of the days when she just, in her words, she just lost it, Rob. And she'd driven to drop him off and they couldn't find anywhere to park. And she used to find it so anxious anyway, just the idea of her husband having chemotherapy. He would be anxious about it. She would be anxious about it. But she would also park the car and wait on double yellow lines because she needed to get as close to the doors as possible because he was really weak. So a week before the chemotherapy, even weaker after chemotherapy. But she couldn't go in with him because if she left the car, then a parking attendant would come and take the car away. So instead she would sit there on her own in her sports car, just thinking about what it was like for him waiting. And she said the anxiety she was feeling, let alone what he was feeling, it was awful. One day she just said, I've had enough. And she literally robbed, she left her sports car there. She came out, she held her husband's hand. They went into the, the ward together and she left her car there, parked at an angle on these double yellow lines to be taken away because she just had enough. And that was her breaking point. And what she set up was a mobile chemotherapy cancer unit. And the charity that I was working with have these units and they will come to as close to your house as possible, sometimes your house. And you can get your chemotherapy in 15 minutes instead of three hours. And 
when they told me this story of what it had been like for the founder beforehand and the anxiety, and that was just, honestly, Rob, I could have talked for much longer about the way they were describing how tricky it is for someone who's diagnosed with cancer and the wait for chemotherapy. When they told me this story, I, yeah, you just realised how important it was, the difference between the life before mobile cancer units uh, and the number of patients who are feeling life like that. And then afterwards, when you hear about the people who they've helped, what it felt like to have the unit on their door, to know the exact time that it was coming, to know that the, the chemotherapy itself only takes 15 minutes. 15 minutes it takes to actually administer it. It was the wait beforehand and everything before it that was awful. And I know from family members, the anxiety they used to suffer the weeks leading up to their treatment and on the travel to their treatment and waiting in the waiting room for their treatment and how different that may have been or would be if you had a mobile unit there just waiting outside. So Ben, it's one thing to hear this done and and be moved by a particular problem that needs solving or that a charity does solve. It's another to look at your own services or the research that your charity does and work out how to apply the same idea to what you might say or you might write. And that's why years ago, I read a book called The Fundraiser Who Wanted More, and a couple of the chapters in that, I quite deliberately lay out this thing, which I called the magic formula, for finding interesting, persuasive things to say. And when you teach these sessions as training days for charities, you go through that whole system. Mm. And the first half of that system is three particular questions to evoke this problem. Again, I'd stress it's not a problem that your charity has, that's sometimes a misunderstanding. What we're seeking to work out is a problem that the beneficiaries, the people who your charity helps has before your charity comes along and does its good thing. So the first of those three questions is, what is the problem experienced by the people or animals your charity helps? And what are the consequences of that problem? In relation to the charity you mentioned before, What might be an answer to that question? The main problem, Rob, is that as well as chemotherapy being something that is incredibly uncomfortable, it's everything else around that that is hugely uncomfortable and huge, builds huge amounts of anxiety. And so the idea of doing it is often as bad as doing it itself. And the consequence of that is that people who could be here for longer because they could be having chemotherapy and spend more time with their family are choosing not to have chemotherapy. Or if they are having chemotherapy, it is an awful experience for them right up until they die or they die earlier. And that is the essence of of their problem. So the tough thing about that is it's just depressing usually and sad or anger inducing rather than very interesting or inspiring, but you can make it more interesting and likely to catch people's attention by asking this next question, which is, what is not obvious about that problem? So in the context of the one you were talking about there, Ben, what would you say? You know, there are a few answers to this, but one of the first ones was time. How long it can take to eventually get your chemotherapy treatment, even though they said that some of the treatments can be 15, 20 minutes long, the wait in terms of by the time you have to get into hospital up until you've had it and afterwards to then be comfortable. They said it could take up to three or four hours of your day just waiting to have the treatment, but not knowing whether it could, you could be next in those three or four hours. Like it's just about how long it takes to eventually get seen in the list of things and the way that that, that the hospital works through no fault of their own. But the impact that has on time is also 
for the rest of the week. So they said that people have told them if they know that week they are due to go into hospital for chemotherapy on the Thursday, it will affect everything. The moment that calendar ticks into that week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as they get closer to the Thursday date, anxiety increases, not just for the person, but for everybody around them. And that kind of makes sense when you think through tiny little elements of it that make every aspect harder. They're going to be quite weak afterwards. So how do you get them back again? How far do they need to walk? Where do you park the car? Where do you park the car? You know, back to the origin story. Where do you park the car if the, car, if the parking is full? How close can you actually get? What do you do? Do you know what, Rob? It's barely even one degree outside today. What do you do if you need to get outside, walk with that person to the, to, to the actual ward? And each one of these extra little elements, especially which you're then f- further from home than you could be, when added up, just really compile and make it harder and harder. And, and actually, the more we talked about these, and we were lucky, we, on that day, we had someone who'd actually worked on the wards with us, the more unexpected things we found, found that stuff that most members of the public just won't really realise are a part of the problem until you start talking about them and then suddenly it becomes obvious that that would be part of the problem. Yes, great examples, Ben. And when I've taught these ideas, I really like this question because although the first question we were dealing with can be often be really quite hard to, to work out what exact problem are we solving? We're not solving cancer. We're solving the suffering associated mm. with this whole treatment. That's what we're solving. And... The first question can be relatively hard, but I love this question. What's not obvious about that problem? Because often once you start to get into it, you get more and more interesting, good ideas about what's so powerful about what drives your organisation. Hi, it's Rob, and I want to jump in quickly to let you know about our two flagship courses, the Major Gifts Mastery Programme and the Corporate Mastery Programme, which are a combination of masterclasses and one-to-one coaching to help fundraising professionals to grow their confidence, and their results. To give you a sense of the difference these programs can make, here's what one fundraiser, Paul Davies, said about how it helped him. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm Head of Communications and Development at Manchester Camerata. We're an orchestra and charity, and I've recently done the Major Gifts Mastery Programme, and, and I can honestly say it's worth its weight in gold. I was meeting, on average, um, six people a month, and now I'm meeting around 20 and we've recently launched our COVID-19 appeal and we've had an amazing start and I've just secured what is the, the largest gift any individual has given to the charity in the past. Um, yeah, do it. If you'd like to find out more about either programme, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. Right now, let's get back to my conversation with Ben as we talk about the third question we find helpful when searching for ways to bring a charity's work to life. Often a way to bring it to life in this thinking session, and especially when you're talking to your supporter or you're doing a pitch or a presentation or writing in a proposal, is to not just leave these as concepts explained intellectually, powerful though they can be if the concepts are the right ones, but to, as you did at the beginning of, this discussion quite deliberately include a real example, even just a short one, so that we can experience this problem and its consequences through the example. And obviously, one thing you can do is talk about the founder's story, but even more powerful, actually, is to talk about just the examples that are going on all the time that your charity is hearing about. 
when you did that session with this charity recently, do you remember any other examples they mentioned to bring to life this problem? Sadly, yes. Nearly everyone that they've worked with had had an experience, either themselves or previously, of what life had been like without that sort of organisation. So one mum said that sadly she'd lost her brother to cancer, I think it was. When he had been having his chemotherapy, the anxiety and the way that the family had seen what it had done to him, but also when all of these things had compounded, the exhaustion that they'd had in trying to go to the hospital, trying to find parking, As it all compounded, she watched it happen. And that was her experience of his final few months and his family's and and the family's experience of the final few months. And sadly, when one of the members of the team shared that example, suddenly other people started thinking through their their other started finding the other examples they had too of what life had been like without the charity in it. By the way, that example we found because the CEO told us about when she'd come home one day and there waiting on her doorstep was a letter from a child to her that said, thank you for giving me my mummy back. Because that same mum who had seen her brother die in that way had been reticent about getting chemotherapy when she'd been diagnosed with cancer, but because of the unit had chosen to get that sort of support. And so she had more time with her kids than she'd had before and even been able to play with them because it was, and the story was unbelievable. And there was, the day was full of lots of tears. But um, for me, what's quite interesting is it only came from a story of the solution that got us questioning, why do you think that letter came in, the card came in the first place? What was life like beforehand? But yeah, and one thing, Rob, is often when we've done this, the stories that we're looking for Sometimes the charity, we don't have them. You don't collect these stories in your charity. These are the stories of where you are not there. So just to be clear, it's not our intention to in any way criticise brilliant hospitals and brilliant cancer treatments in hospitals. Ben, do you want to just speak to that idea and how, because that's the last thing that that the charity you worked would ever want to do. That wasn't their intention. And how did they frame it? Yeah, absolutely. And the... That they were not, you know, clearly like the charities that we've worked with, and and like they would say, the the NHS hospitals that they work with are incredible and doing an amazing job. The difference is that if you woke up a few years ago, as their founder did, to just do one thing, which is to make that journey just one thing, not all the thousands of things that those hospitals have to do, but the one thing of making that journey of that patient slightly better then what would you do and how would you do it and that in no way is detracting from the brilliant work of 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 their hospitals they're just saying what what would you do and excitingly the impact of their units is remarkable you know if if on average it's a three hour wait to to get chemotherapy this is 15 minutes rob 15 minutes you can they can give you a 15 minute slot so that you know exactly when it is can you imagine the, the difference there and the unit is a mobile unit so it comes to as close to you as possible literally it can come to your front to your front driveway if you need it to so that you can remember if it's one degree outside like it is today well, I'll just walk out my house straight into the unit where there'll be a nurse and care put, put someone right there. And immediately afterwards, I'll walk out straight into my front door and to be to be looked after there. And one of the challenges is what happens if you run out of medication? What happens if you run out of the right uh, prescription? Well, on this unit, which has come to your house, they'll have all of the extra 
bits of support as well so that it, it, there and then you can get that access so that you again you don't have to go out you don't have to do anything and all of this means that people are having chemotherapy for longer for living for longer and i think i said this earlier that they the charity said you know i, I we're not always here to save your life. So these different types of cancer, we're not going to save your life, but we're here to give you your life back again for as long as possible. And it's no surprise that they have people now who uh, we often ask the question, do you have an example of where your work has helped someone and how do you know it's helped someone? And not only do they have people who say that, thank you for, you know, I've written you cards to say, thank you. You've given me my mum back. And we have, they have mums telling them that, but they've got local ambassadors now who with their very final few weeks on this earth, what they'll do is go into their local communities and raise money to make sure that these units are around the UK because it changed their life so much. It gave their family so much. And after they're gone, the families will then raise that raise money for years and years. And if you just look on, on the charity's website, they've got family after family. Um, it is fascinating. It, and it's, it's no surprise that their, their units are growing, but it is most powerful when we contrast the time it takes to get support with them to, to without them. The way a family talks about getting chemotherapy with them compared to, to without them, the access to drugs with them than without them. It's, it's that contrast that is most powerful. So Ben, the first thing I would say is when you're talking about this mobile unit that's funded by the charity, it is really interesting and compelling to me. So it's not that we shouldn't talk about what our charity does, but very definitely we tend to hear those ideas in a much more interested way if first you've invoked the problem before you go into any depth about how the unit or the therapy or the research or whatever it is, how we do what we do. So it's not that we don't talk about what a charity does, but it's the same as with a, a pin number or a telephone number. If you get the numbers in the wrong order, they're not going to work. Yeah. And what I've found with fundraising is addressing certain concepts in a particular order dramatically increases the chances that you'll catch people's interest and help them connect to the difference you are making. But then maybe another question for people listening is, well, that sounds like an amazing, neat proposition that charity has, Rob. The thing we do is drier or more theoretical or the problems. I mean, I guess we are solving problems, but they're much harder to pin down in an interesting way. What might you say if we're wondering that about the particular cause we're looking at? Yeah, and that's not unusual. So I th th think of a, it was a climate data and research charity who said the same thing. And they said, Ben, it's all well and good if I, if I help families or children or animals, but we don't do that. Our money is spent influencing and talking to and having meetings with government officials. That's what we do. How does this work for us? And it was only when we started exploring those first three questions we talked about, Rob, tell me, what's the essence of the problem and the consequence and what's unexpected and what's the examples that the gold occurred. So quickly we established that unless they were there, the environment is being damaged and that is not just affecting the lives of animals and then habitats, but humans too. Indigenous people are dying right now because of the impact of climate. And what's unexpected about it is that one of the main reasons that all of these habitats are changing you know, across the world is because of the decisions that are being made of where big brands are putting their factories and are building their you know, palm oil, et cetera. 
And that is uh, decisions that are being made today are catastrophic for the future. And what they then said was that, actually, Ben, well, yeah, when we talked to some governments and showed them the impact in data and in satellite images of what happens, the, the difference now is that what a country that was about to set foot on a path that in the next 10 years would destroy all of their natural sort of habitats, now they will not allow any building to be done in those natural habitats. They, in fact, don't, the, the entire, the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Economics for this particular country will not sign anything off until they have first gone through our 10-point plan to make sure that it is good for the environment. And that became most powerful when we put the list together and realised that until they were there, decisions were being made today that would affect the vegetation and the habitats and people would die. But I totally appreciate that if every day your job is speaking to bureaucrats in government, you don't quite grasp the impact of the world without you. And yet half an hour, 40 minutes of talking it through with them, you begin to see this content. And one of my favourite things about this role, and I know we're nearly out of time, is I think we had about 14 people in the room. And as we filled each element of these questions, it came from about eight different people. And then that thread was merged together to be able to build that case for support that helped us to create that sense of what the world was like without them and then the impact that they made afterwards. So in conclusion, Ben, we're not saying don't find out about the service you provide or the research you do. Of course, find out as much as you can, but also be really curious about the problems that your services or research solves. And if right now you as a fundraiser don't have access to all of those interesting ideas and reasons, what would your key piece of advice be, Ben, to help people follow through and find more of that information out? Maybe you've already got a session booked in with an expert who helps deliver services or is a director of services or ideally is a frontline person who's right in the thick of it. Maybe there's already a session booked in. I would attend that session like a journalist and I, they'll talk about the service and what you do. I would really deliberately try to ask them about what life is like without the service. Why are you doing it? What's the problem for either the people you help, the governments that you support, the reset? What, what happens if we're not there? So for me, it is if there's a session like that already booked in, go there like a journalist. And if there isn't, think through somebody or ask a colleague who is somebody on our front line who is an expert at this that I can talk to and get that, get that Zoom call booked in, 25 minutes, half an hour, so that you can ask them these questions. I know fundraisers now who do that and they just push record on Zoom and Teams and, and end up with that content they can refer back to. Ben, thank you ever so much for coming along and sharing those examples with us and your take on how to apply this technique. I really appreciate it. I look forward to catching up with you very soon. Bye-bye. So I hope you found our conversation helpful. To sum up some of the questions that Ben and I have found helpful in bringing a charity's cause to life. Today, we focused on the first four questions from the tool that we call the magic formula. Ben and I have found these questions can help you find interesting concepts to talk about for literally any charitable cause, because at its heart, every charitable organization exists to make something better. That is to solve or help solve a problem of some kind. And ultimately, that is what most of our supporters want our charities to do for them. So in case you find it helpful, I'm just going to run through the first three of these questions one more time. Number one, what is the essence of the problem for the people or the animals or the environments that your charity serves? And what are the consequences of that problem? 
by which I mean how high are the stakes? How bad do things get when this problem is not solved? Secondly, can you think of several things which are not immediately obvious about why that problem happens or why the problem makes life so difficult? And thirdly, crucially, can you find any real examples or stories or anecdotes that bring these ideas to life? That is, what happens when your service is not there? I'm not saying that thinking through answers to these three questions will solve all fundraising problems. But after years of workshopping these concepts with hundreds of fundraisers, I have found that these first three questions do tend to help you make progress in finding interesting and persuasive things to say to your supporters. To be clear, this is definitely not all you need to make a persuasive case when you speak. In the system that I teach in my book and that Ben and I teach on our courses and on our mastery programs, this is just the first half. There are four more key questions and ideas that make up the second half of that system. In essence, these later ones are all questions and concepts designed not so much to explain what your charity does as to reassure and inspire people that your charity service does actually work. Said differently, what could you possibly say that conveys a certainty that, in this case, the charity's service makes cancer treatment far easier to undertake and therefore helps people live longer, happier lives? Actually, in our conversation, Ben did demonstrate one of these final four tactics that we teach, which is in answer to our fourth question, i.e. what story or real example helps show the service works? So we suggest that this system works best if you've got two kinds of story. Those which help us understand and connect to the problem, and then to create a kind of sliding doors moment, those which show that your solution works. Obviously, there are other things that help convey this certainty. And for instance, outcomes that you're able to measure and share in terms of numbers is another of these. If you'd like some ideas and advice in this area, do check out episode 34 of this podcast. For today, I think that's plenty to squeeze into a single episode. But if you'd like to go into more depth and you're not able to join one of our programs or courses, my book, The Fundraiser Who Wanted More, would be a good place to start. As always, you can get a summary and a transcript of today's episode on the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. If you're interested in finding out more about the Corporate Mastery Programme, which is the one that Ben helps me to deliver and coach, or the Major Gifts Mastery Programme, this system we were describing today is one of many techniques we help you learn and apply through these programmes. If you'd like to find out more, do check out the information on our website by going to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. Thank you so much to everyone who's been in touch and to everyone who's been sharing our podcast. Just before I go, a quick shout out to Emma Russ, to Andrew Kendall and to Tanya Hutt. Thank you all for your kind feedback and for spreading the word this week. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then Ben and I would be really grateful if you could take a moment to share it on so we can get these ideas out to help as many charities as possible. If anyone wants to get in touch, Ben and I are both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Ben is at Ben Swart and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Finally, thank you for listening today and I wish you the very best of luck with your efforts to bring your cause to life for your supporters and your potential supporters. I look forward to sharing another Bright Spot episode with you very soon. <laughs>